Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you everyone for listening. My name is Vinod Nambudiri and I'm here as part of Dialogues in Dermatology for this month's JAD podcast feature. I'm pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. John Barbieri on his recent publication in JAD entitled The Clinical Utility of Laboratory Monitoring During Isotretinoin Therapy for Acne and Changes to Monitoring Practices Over Time. I'd like to give Dr. Barbieri a moment to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his background before we tackle the content of the article. Thanks, Vinod, for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. I'm a research fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. I just finished my residency a little over a year ago, and I have interest in studying acne, optimizing antibiotic use in dermatology, and health services research. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Thanks so much, John, for that background. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about some of your areas of focus that you tend to examine as part of your research work and give us a little bit of an idea of what other areas maybe you've published on in the past. A lot of my research tends to focus on the treatment and management of acne, and in particular, I have a focus on trying to understand alternatives to oral antibiotics for the use in acne. Right now, dermatologists prescribe more antibiotics than any other specialty on a per-provider basis. And when we look at acne, it's one of the most common areas where we prescribe those antibiotics. So trying to understand how we can use other alternative treatments like spironolactone or combined oral contraceptives for women with acne or isotretinoin for patients who need it is an area of my research focus. And then in addition, I have interest in health services research. So trying to understand how we can provide the most optimal care for our patients and how we can optimize the way that different players in the healthcare system interact with each other. It sounds like your work touches on a lot of core fundamentals that are central to the practice of dermatology between antibiotic prescribing and then how do we examine the context of what we do in the larger healthcare system, which is really fascinating. I'd love to turn to the particular article at hand here and maybe start by asking you, what got you interested in examining isotretinoin laboratory monitoring practices? When I was training you get the opportunity to, to see a lot of different practice patterns from different clinicians that you're learning from. And I saw a ton of variation in terms of what people were doing in terms of how they monitor patients who are on isotretinoin. And combined with, during that time, there are some articles from Jocelyn Kirby's group that were coming out looking at the value of laboratory monitoring for isotretinoin. And it got me interested in, in one, how often are there laboratory abnormalities? Do they change practice? What's the value of this testing? And two, as we've gotten more and more evidence that's over time, I think, suggested that this laboratory monitoring may be of low value. Are we actually changing our practice? Are we ordering less labs? And, and where are we ordering the most labs? So those are questions that we wanted to try to address with this study. Great. I think that's a concept that will ring true with many dermatologists that we find variability from practice to practice regarding standard approaches to the management of several of our diseases. And so I think this is a nice concept to be examining further, thinking about how do we deliver high-value care for our patients and thinking about our role as a specialty. As we get into some of the methodology that you 
undertook in this article, one of the things that your study is built around is the use of a large claims database for analyzing these laboratory trends. Maybe for those folks who are listening who may or may not be familiar with research using claims databases, maybe walk us through some of the, the methods that you formally used in this study. Yeah, so our data set was based off of a large electronic health records database, which includes over 7,000 different clinics across the country. And it brings together data from the electronic health record and chart, as well as claims data to form a data set that encompasses encounters the patients were seen, the diagnoses of those encounters, the prescriptions they were given, lab testing that was done, and puts that all together into one large warehouse. And so these data sets can be really powerful for asking questions because you can easily get a large sample size. So for example, our study had 1,863 patients in it in this single study. In the 2016 meta-analysis by Lee and colleagues, that study had about 1,600 patients total in it across over 25 different studies. So claims and electronic health records databases can be a nice way to get a large, broadly representative data set. One of the things that your article used in terms of its primary methodology was an analysis of a large claims data set for identifying isotretinoin lab monitoring practices. For our listeners who might not be familiar with research using large claims databases, maybe you could walk us through some of the methodology that you employed and what maybe are the challenges of working with such data. Our study was based on data from the Optum Insights Electronic Health Record Database and this is a large data set that includes uh, data from the clinical records and from claims for patients who are seen at over 7,000 different clinics across the country. So these kind of data sets have an advantage of being really large and representative of populations, which is a strength of them. Uh, a relative weakness of them is there's not as much clinical detail. So when you think of a classical chart review, you think about looking at all the details of exactly what the clinician's writing. With these types of electronic health records or claims data sets, we can tell when the patients were seen, what diagnosis codes were associated with encounters, what medications were prescribed, lab tests that were ordered. But we don't have exactly as much granular detail of the exact clinical decision-making that you might see in a clinical chart. So that's a downside to them. But the size of them is a good strength. So our study had over 1,800 patients in it. And in comparison, a recent meta-analysis looking at this topic in 2016 by Lee and colleagues across 25, over 25 studies only had 1,600 patients in it. So it's very easy to get a large sample size that's representative with these electronic health record data sets, but they do have a less granular details in terms of clinical decision-making than you might see in a clinical chart review-based study. Turning specifically to your article and the analysis that you performed, what were the key findings that you'd like to underscore for those who are listening? In our study, we looked at two questions. First, we wanted to see how often are there lab abnormalities for patients who are receiving isotretinoin for acne. And among 1,863 patients who we evaluated in our cohort, when we looked at lipid function testing, only 0.7% of patients at any time in the course of therapy had a grade three or greater abnormality in their lipid testing. And, and we used the CTCAE criteria for assessing adverse events to define what we considered to be an abnormality. And those tend to correspond with what one might worry about in clinical practice. So for lipid triglyceride level of greater than 500, for LFTs, it would be having 
uh, a finding that's over five times upper limit of normal. So in our study, less than 1% of patients had a grade three or higher triglyceride abnormality. Less than 0.5% of patients had an AST or ALT abnormality during their course of isotranone. And in fact, these abnormalities were just as common on therapy as a baseline. And then finally, we didn't observe any complete blood count abnormalities in our study. The second thing that we wanted to look at was how often is testing being ordered and how is this changing over time? And we found that testing is quite common. So despite the fact that we and others have found that complete blood count testing is of low value in this population, over 50% of patients were having a checked at baseline and about 30 to 40% of patients were having a check each month on therapy. Lipid testing and liver function testing were even more common. And then when we looked at changes over time, there really weren't any substantial decreases during the decade uh, that we looked at during this study, despite the fact that there have been repeated calls to, to limit testing in this population. Were any of those conclusions or those results particularly surprising to you, or what did you make of those findings? I was a bit surprised by the fact that the complete blood count testing was still so common. I knew that the people were doing it, and there's been a number of papers going back even into the 2000s suggesting that we should stop ordering complete blood counts for patients on isotretinoin, but I was surprised that 50% of patients were getting complete blood count testing done, and that seems to me like an area where we could really improve what we're doing for our patients. I think that's a really great segue to speaking about sort of the latter half of your paper, which also emphasizes the cost effectiveness or maybe the lack thereof of laboratory monitoring for patients on isotretinoin. Maybe discuss that, that aspect of your conclusion a, a bit further. There is a recent study by Hansen and colleagues that reviewed the literature on this topic about lab monitoring for isotretinoin, and they suggested limiting modern to baseline and peak dose. And based on our results, I would agree that's a reasonable option. We found that for instance, lipid abnormalities, they tend to peak around month two or three. And so there's unlikely to be much benefit by continuing testing patients after they've reached the peak dose of the medication. And so if we were to imagine if shifting laboratory monitoring practices from what we observed in our cohort to that suggestion of checking them just at baseline at peak dose, we estimate conservatively that that would result in savings of $17 million per year with respect to decreased lab testing. And that's a pretty conservative estimate. We use Medicare pricing for the cost of labs. Just to put into context, in the study by Hansen and colleagues, they used prices for their health system, and they came up with $131 million a year. And so probably it's somewhere in between uh, what the actual savings would be, but it's quite substantial. And that's just financial savings. There's also the psychological benefit of reduced lab testing for patients, not having to get stuck as teenage and young adult population, that's a, a big benefit, and increasing access potentially to a medication that can be very helpful for the right patient. There are plenty of people who I, I see in my practice who are hesitant to be on this medication because of the lab testing. And so being able to reassure patients that we might not need as much testing is a way we could open up this therapy to more potential candidates who might benefit from it. I think that's a really important point in terms of the psychological burden of the testing that maybe we don't discuss as much with our patients, but it's a very real one for all of us as dermatologists to be cognizant of when we're starting patients on a medication that requires some form of ongoing laboratory monitoring, really what, what is the 
quality of life or psychological impact of that testing on their disease and on their well-being overall. So thank you for touching upon that. I guess with all of this information at hand, this is obviously a topic that you've given a lot of thought and committed a lot of effort to. What's your current approach to laboratory monitoring for isotretinoin patients in your practice, and where do you see the future of this kind of going? In my current practice, I, I review the literature, including this study, with my patients, and I offer them to check laboratory studies for lipid panels and LFTs at baseline and at the peak dose. And after that discussion, some patients actually tell me that they really don't want to do very much testing at all, and, and I've had a few patients where we've done really limited testing. In the future, I do think it would be interesting to think more about the overall value of testing and the cost-effectiveness of testing in general. There was an interesting study by George Albrecht's group a couple of years ago that looked at pancreatitis in patients treated with isotretinoin. When we think about the rationale for lipid monitoring, the common argument is that we want to try and identify patients who have elevated triglycerides because that might be a risk factor for pancreatitis, which we can know can happen with this medicine. And if we identify those patients, maybe we can prevent that complication. However, what they found in their study was that among 25 reported cases of pancreatitis, only four of them they could attribute it to elevated triglycerides. So this monitoring may both be inefficient in terms of there's a very low frequency of abnormalities, and it might also be ineffective in terms of preventing the outcome we care about, uh, which is potentially pancreatitis associated with isotretinoin. And similarly, with LFT monitoring, we see abnormalities just as common at baseline as on therapy. And to me, that suggests that those abnormalities might not be medication-related. Maybe they're related to CK or muscle, abnormalities that we know can happen with isotretinoin. Maybe they're just related to underlying activities that are happening in the population, activity, alcohol, et cetera. And so I think going forward, we should think about, is monitoring valuable in this population in terms of preventing complications? Because if we're doing a test and the results of it aren't helping us change management in a positive way for our patients, then we should think about whether we should be doing that test at all. One of the things that you alluded to during this conversation is that there have been studies and papers in the literature for a decade or more that have maybe highlighted this as a problem, and yet in your analysis you saw there wasn't really much change over time in terms of actual physician practice on this matter. Do you have any vision or strategies as to how you might actually go about resulting in some behavior change in the monitoring of labs for patients on isotretinoin? Yeah, that's a great question. It really gets into the challenges of, of implementation science. So we can develop evidence infinitely showing that what we should do, but if we're not able to put that evidence into practice, what does it matter? So I think at the most basic level, there's an opportunity for us in, in guidelines to be really strong about eliminating complete blood count testing abnormality, which has been repeatedly shown to have really no value in this population, and to encourage clinicians to use reduced lab testing, maybe only testing at peak dose, plus or minus testing at baseline, so they can feel comfortable doing that, that there's a guideline that supports them doing those practices. And then we're going to have to do studies to try to understand how can we impact change in practice? Are there things we can do with the electronic health record? Is there a need for education? What are the underlying factors that lead clinicians to behave the way they are? And what would be the interventions that we need to do to change those behaviors? And that's an area in need of future research. 
Fantastic. Any other final takeaway points that you'd like to leave our listeners with as we wrap up the discussion of your recent article? I think in dermatology in general, we want to be thinking about anytime we order a test, how is that test going to change my management? And as we've seen in this study and other studies, lab monitoring for isotranoin has a very low rate of having tests that are positive, and we might not even be able to change our management in a meaningful way based on those tests. And so we should be reflective about, is this a valuable practice going forward, and what's going to be the best way to take care of our patients? And I would argue that reduced laboratory monitoring, maybe just doing a test at peak dose, might be a way to both reduce financial toxicity to our patients in terms of cost, and also to improve the patient experience and to improve access to very helpful medication for our patients. Thanks so much, John. I think that was a really nice summary of the key points for our listeners to take away. Um, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to the discussion with Dr. John Barbieri from the University of Pennsylvania regarding his recent publication in the JAD titled The Clinical Utility of Laboratory Monitoring During Isotretinoin Therapy for Acne and Changes to Monitoring Practices Over Time, and want to thank Dr. Barbieri for sharing his time and his insights with all of us. Yeah, thanks for having me.